good morning. It is good to be here. Uh, it is a blessing that God has given us um, to, to come together to remember what it is that he has done to allow us to be his children, to be his people, uh, to be able to join together our hearts in worship. And now, as we seek to come to know God more, more fully, more closely, uh, to spend time together in his word, if there's anything of value that's going to be said here today, uh, it's not going to come from uh, you know, our, our minds or our own mouths. It's going to come from the word of God. That's where the power is. And that's what it's able to, to uh, instruct us, to equip us, to nourish us, to help us be who God wants us to be. So I want to draw your attention towards your Bibles today. We, we talked last week uh, about sharing the gospel uh, and about trying to equip ourselves to uh, you know, have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, to, to go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Part of being a disciple is that we, we share the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ with those around us. But sometimes we feel ill-equipped to do so. Uh, sometimes it, it, it can be uh, challenging for us to know where to start. I, I'm going through a series of charts that I've used uh, from time to time in hopes that this will be one tool that you can use uh, to, to share uh, the gospel with others. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes the best thing is to just open your Bibles and study a portion of Scripture with somebody. Study, study the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you know, study Romans, study the Gospels. Um, but sometimes it's helpful uh, to try to help people see a, a bigger picture of approach, to try to put some ideas from across the Scriptures together. Um, and the, the goal of these lessons, we're, we're going to look at four outlines, four uh, charts that kind of take us through uh, a big picture approach uh, of coming to know God, understanding our purpose, uh, understanding our need for salvation, understanding what God has done to make that possible, um, and what we need to do in response uh, to the sacrifice of, of Jesus. So we talked last time about this chart, knowing our purpose. A good place to start with just about anybody is talking about what, what is the purpose of life? Um, that's a question that, that mankind has asked uh, uh, throughout the centuries, and yet if we're going to get an answer, there's really only one place that we can get it, and it's the one who put us here. Why did God create us? Why did God make us in the beginning? And on the very first pages of our, our Bible, we see God saying that he created man in his own image with the capacity and intent that we should reflect his glory and his character in our lives. Just as an artist might paint a, a self-portrait that would reflect his personal characteristics, God intended uh, to make us in his own image that we might reflect the fruit of his character. Um, his holiness, his love, his purity, his peace, his joy, his truth. Um, and so God intends that we be a mirror of his image, of his glory. Uh, Ephesians 4, uh, verse 32 through 5, verse 1, tells us that God intends that we imitate him as beloved children, that people will see our Father living in us from day to day. Uh, but we talked last time about really the only way that we can imitate God is that we come to know him. The only way we know what that image looks like is for us to get closer and closer to him, to, to, to study the, the, the features of his face, so to speak. Um, you know, you think about an, an artist who's trying to reproduce a painting. You know, what, they're going to spend a whole lot of time looking at that person's face, looking at every little shadow, every, every little wrinkle, you know, to make sure uh, they're, they're, they're reproducing that. We, we need to get to know God. 
And we need to get to know him closely and intimately if we want to reflect his image and character in our lives. Uh, and the only way we can do that is by God revealing himself to us. Uh, Rick made reference just a moment ago to Hebrews chapter 1. God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many, many ways and times past. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. And so Jesus came, took on flesh and blood to show us exactly what the character of God looked like to show us the perfect image of God. And yet Jesus isn't still here in the flesh. When he was departing in John 13 through 17, he tells his disciples that after he leaves, he was going to send the Spirit to guide them into all truth, to remind them all things that he taught them, uh, and, and to continue guiding them into all the truth that they needed. We see the Spirit doing that through the work of the apostles and prophets uh, who wrote down the things that the Spirit was speaking through them from God. Um, so that we may know uh, the things freely given to us by God. So the reason that we're here today opening our Bibles, the, the reason that we, we, we care about what this says, is because we want to come to know God so that we can fulfill the purpose for which he created us. Um, but the question that I want us to look at today, returning this idea of our, of our purpose, is have we succeeded in that purpose? How has mankind done, uh, how have I done in fulfilling that purpose and reflecting God's image and character in our life? Uh, and you, you can see from the, uh, the title of our sermon today, maybe you can in just a moment, Know Your Failure um, is what we're going to be looking at. Um, we, we haven't done a very good job at all, in fact. Um, and, and I want to warn you from the beginning that this lesson is a little bit of a downer. Uh, it's uh, before we can come to appreciate the good news. Um, you see in the book of Romans where Paul is prepared to tell us about the gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. What does he spend the first three chapters telling us about? Our failure. Uh, before we can appreciate the gospel, uh, we first need to ex- appreciate our need for the gospel. We first need to recognize that we have not and cannot uh, fulfill this uh, this purpose on our own. Um, and so we, we talked about last time this idea of God's perfect image in our lives, creating us in his image to be a self-portrait of his character, a, a mirror of his glory. Um, but if you look in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, we see that we have all fallen short. Um, look in Romans 3 and verse 23. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, The very next verse, he's going to talk about the good news, being justified as a gift by his grace. We're going to get to that in our next outline. Uh, So don't worry, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. But before we can understand verse 24, we first need to understand verse 23 here. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is sin? You know, we, we, we really never use that word outside of a religious context. And I think sometimes people um, you know, may, may struggle with, well, what is this idea of, of, of sin? Literally, the, the, the Greek word translated sin here comes from the root idea of missing the mark. So you might think you know, of an of a archer um, getting his arrow ready and shooting at a target, and he, he misses the mark. That, that's the core idea of this word sin. Well, what, what is the mark that we've missed, though? says, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God 
is the mark, right? His character, his image, what we were created to be, what sin is, is any deviation from the character of God within our lives. Uh, it, it's not that God just sat down one day and said, um, you know, what, well, what should we call good and evil? Let, let's, say, let's say speaking the truth is good. And I guess we should say telling a lie is evil then, right? Um, and let's say, you know, hurting your neighbor, we'll, we'll say that's a bad thing. No, those things are inherent in the very character of God. Uh, telling the truth is good because God is truth. Telling the lie is wrong because God is truth, right? Um, hurting my neighbor, doing, uh, you know, damaging things, stealing, murder, uh, you know, hateful speech, those things are all wrong because they're violations of the character of God. And so when, when you think about this idea of, of sin within our lives, it's, it's a failure in the purpose for which God made us. It's a deviation from the glory of, of his perfect image. Um, we have tainted the glorious image of God imprinted upon our souls. And so, if you look a little bit earlier in Romans chapter 3, we see that, that all of us are failures. Look, look in Romans 3 verse 9 through 12. And this is the world from God's perspective. Look in verse 9. It says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You know, when you, when you hear a statement like that, I think sometimes our, our initial reaction might be, well, wait, wait a second, you know, I'm a pretty good person, right? And I know some pretty good people. You know, you're saying there's, there's no one good, not even one. You know, when, when we measure by our own standards, when, when we measure by, you know, the, uh, the, the scale of, of Hitler to Mother Teresa, you know, then, then maybe I don't look so bad. But when we measure from God's standards... From God's glory, his perfect image, when we see the world from God's perspective, he says there's none righteous. There's none who has truly fulfilled the purpose for which they were created, who has truly sought out God as he intended. None who has done good fully by his standards. And so we've broken that crystal clear mirror. We've ruined that painting. Imagine sin as, as taking that, that perfect painting that God created and, and taking a bunch of black paint and just kind of splattering it over that, that masterpiece. Th think about sin as, as having a, a mirror uh, and cracking it, breaking it into a hundred different pieces. That, that's what sin is. It's taking what God intended for us to be, his glory, his perfect character and image, and in some way, breaking it and ruining it. And he says that in doing so, we have altogether become useless. Uh, you know, what, what would you do with a painting that had been completely ruined uh, beyond your ability to repair had black paint splattered all over it. Would you put it up in your foyer so that everybody could admire it when they walk in? What, what would you do with a mirror? You know, if your bathroom mirror was broken into a hundred pieces, what, what would you do with that? Would you continue to go in and, and admire yourself in that mirror day after day? 
Well, no, you, you clean up the pieces and, and you throw it out, right? It, it no longer is fulfilling its purpose. Uh, it, it doesn't have the, the worth that it was intended to, to have. And so, since it's completely failing in the purpose for which it was created, it deserves to be thrown out. You know, as I said, you might feel like, I, I thought we were going to talk about good news. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about the gospel. This, this is not making me feel very good about myself, right? I think we need to appreciate that salvation is meaningless unless we understand what are we are being saved from. So sometimes we want, and rightly so, to talk about grace, to talk about the good news, to talk about the, the joys of salvation. But, but do you notice in the very word salvation is the idea of being saved? right? Imagine for a moment if you're out walking on the street and I come along and I throw a life preserver at you. What are you going to do? You're going to step out of the way and say, why why are you throwing things at me, right? On the other hand, what if you are gasping for your last breath in the middle of the ocean and I come out and throw a life preserver to you? What are you going to do? Yes, you're going to grab for it with, with all your strength and all your might, right? Because you recognize how desperately you need it. Sometimes we're trying to preach the good news of the gospel, but we don't really want to talk about what it is that we're being saved from. Because we don't want to make anybody feel bad. We don't, certainly don't want to talk about hell. When we do that, we rob the gospel of its power. You think about the very idea of grace. Grace is the idea of us God, God giving something to us that we don't deserve, Right? When we get this picture that, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, I'm a pretty you know, valuable and, and worthy person, um, then we completely tread over the idea of grace. Right? You can't emphasize grace. You can't glorify grace unless we first understand that God is giving us something that we in no way deserve. And so, th- as I said, this is going to be a downer. We're, we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about its consequences. But the reason that we're doing that is, is so that by the end of this study, we are hungering and thirsting and crying out and reaching out for what it is that God alone can provide. There is light at the end of the title. There is a verse 24, not just a verse 23 in Romans 3. But, but let's spend some time to make sure we understand how deeply we need the deliverance and the salvation that God has to provide. As we said, that broken mirror, that ruined painting, it rightly deserves to be thrown out. It's failed in its purpose. And so Romans 6 in verse 23, God tells us the wages of sin is death. Again, we see the light there. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We're going to get to that. But first, what we deserve, what we've earned, our wages, is death. Um, And when we talk about death, Uh, we're not just talking about physical death here. From the beginning of time, God has has taught us this concept that sin deserves death. You remember in the garden, what was the very first law that man and woman were given? You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if you do, the day that you do, you will surely die. From the beginning, God told us, if, if you... Uh, disobey my law, uh, deviate from my my character. Uh, If you sin, the consequence is death. But when we talk about death in the scriptures, we're not 
only or merely talking about physical death. Look for a moment with me in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Revelation 21 is one of the most comforting passages in the scripture. We often find portions of Revelation 21 being read at funerals as it talks about the comfort uh, that can that God provides um, for, for his people beyond death. But it doesn't only talk about heaven here. Notice after it talks in verses 1 through 7 about the comforts of being in God's presence eternally. It then says in verse 8, Revelation 21 and verse 8, but for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Here we see the consequences of sin being death, but we're not just talking about physical death. We, we understand the first death, right? We've, we've all seen that. We've uh, uh, experienced that of, of those that we love uh, passing from this life. But here he, calls, he talks about a second death, uh, a lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Uh, in, in Matthew 10 and verse 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. When we talk about the wages of sin being death, we're talking about the second death. Uh, we're, we're talking about not only the death of the body, but the death of the soul. Uh, and physical death, we might describe as, as the separation of our body from its source of life, right? Uh, even as the body without the spirit is dead. When our, our source of life, our spirit, leaves our body, it's dead. But spiritual death, the second death, uh, the soul dying, is the soul being separated from its source of life. The soul being separated from God. Um, and, and Jesus uh, describes it, Revelation describes it as uh, a lake burning with fire and brimstone. Jesus, in, in Mark chapter 9, describes it as where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not that we're talking about literal physical fire uh, or little physical worms. Like, physical fire is quenched, right? F physical worms do, you know, eventually finish the process of de decomposition and that's it. Um, just like heaven is not about gold and pearls and jewels and this nice mansion where I'm going to live it up and get everything that I ever wanted here on earth, right? Those are images, the gold and the pearls are images to describe to us in terms of we can understand the glory of being in the presence of God for all eternity. In the same way, fire and brimstone and, and, and worms, it's not that that's literally, physically, what, what hell is is it's that, that those are descriptions in terms that we can understand of the torment of being separated from God for all eternity. And that's what it's about. Second death, the separation of the soul from its source of life. It's about being separated from the source of all things good. Sin separates us from God. We see that concept in Isaiah 59. Uh, Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Here God told Israel, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. 
But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does, does not hear. Sin separates us from God. We can't be in fellowship with God. Be in a, a, a relationship with him uh, when we're in sin. God is holy. God is pure. And he can't dwell with, have fellowship with us in our sin. It's not a problem that God's hand is just too short. You know, when, when Israel is experiencing judgment, it's not that God just doesn't have the power to save them, right? It's not that his ear is dull. It's not that, that God is just, isn't hearing their cries uh, or that he doesn't care. He says, the problem is that you're continuing your sin. I can't have fellowship with you in your sin. And so we, we understand this concept of, of sin separating us from God. But, but while that's true, in, in a sense, as we're here on earth, that we're not in fellowship with God when we're in sin, we see an eternity that's going to be true in a much greater and, and final sense. Look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, and we'll, we'll start reading in verse 6. Here, Paul is writing to these brethren in Thessalonica, talking about um, you know, the, the suffering that they're facing through persecution. And starting in verse 6, he says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When Jesus comes again, we're told that, that he is going to bring judgment upon those who do not know God. And, and when we're talking about knowing God, we're not just talking about those who, who know some information about God. We're talking about a relationship with him, right? Those who have not responded to this relationship that he's extended to them and those who have not obeyed the gospel. Remember that phrase, by the way, obeyed the gospel, because we're going to come back to that later. Um, the gospel is not simply something to be believed. It is something to be obeyed. But for those who haven't responded, haven't received this relationship with God that he has extended to all mankind, he says they're going to pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. Brother, make no mistake, that's what hell is all about. It's about being separated from God. The, the most wonderful thing about heaven is not gold and pearls and jewels and a, a mansion. The most wonderful thing about heaven is that we get to be in the presence and fellowship with God who is the source of all things good for all eternity. And I don't know what all that's going to be like. God describes it to us in, in some physical terms that we can understand. But, but I know I'm going to be with God. And there is nothing greater, nothing better. But the torment and the fears of hell, they're, they're not just about you know, physical descriptions of torment. Th those are terms that describe to us the torment of being separated from the presence and the glory of God for all eternity. Remember James 1 and verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above from the Father of lights. God is the source of all things good. What, what do you get when you're separated from the source of all things good? 
you know, in, in this life, we, we have a, a mixture, right? We see the goodness of God's creation, all the good things that he has blessed us with, but we also see the brokenness of sin. And so from day to day, we experience suffering and hardship and grief and tears. And yet, through that, we still can cling to hope and comfort and peace. But one day, the goodness of God and the brokenness of sin are going to be separated eternally. And if, and if we're separated from the presence of God, we're not going to have anything good. The torments of hell, as Jesus describes them to us in the scripture, are, are the torments of being separated from the source of all things good. We're not going to have any comfort, any peace, any hope, any joy, any fellowship with, with our creator. And so when we think about hell, it's not that we should think that, that God is just some malevolent uh, creator who sat down one day and said, okay, you know, what, what's, what's the worst way that I can, I can punish sinners, right? No, hell is, is a place where, where God has prepared the judgment of Satan and his angels and confined all the torments and brokenness and consequences of sin uh, in a place separated from him in his glory. It's the natural consequence of being separated from God for all eternity. Um, and, and let me say as well, um, do, do you know who spoke the most about hell within the scripture? Do you know where we see the most description of it? It's in the Gospels. It's out of Jesus' own mouth that we see the most uh, speaking about hell. What, why is that? Well, because Jesus brought the solution. <laughs> Jesus can talk about it openly and directly because he has come so that we might not have to experience that. And I think another thing that, that we need to appreciate as we're going to turn our attention towards the cross and lessons to come is, is when God sent Jesus to die upon the cross, he was essentially saying, if you go to hell, you're going to have to go there over my dead body. God does not want us to experience the torments of separation from him. God has done everything aside from violate our free will and make us into puppets to, to restore that fellowship with us. And we're going to see that even more and more clearly as we look further into the gospel. But we need to understand what it is that we're being saved from. God doesn't want us to be separated from him. And the consequences of being separated from God, from the creator and source of all things good, um, are not something to take lightly. And so what should we learn from all of this? Um, I think we need to recognize um, that only those uh, who acknowledge uh, their own brokenness, who acknowledge their desperation and their need for God's grace, will, will be saved, will respond to the gospel. Um, the gospel is not for good people. The gospel is for bad people who want to become good. And, and if we think that we can come to God, that we can come to Jesus, um, you know, as a good and righteous person and just kind of get our, our stamp of approval from him and that's how it works, then we are sorely mistaken. If we are ever going to understand the gospel, um, appreciate the gospel, receive the gospel, obey the gospel, it has to come from a deep conviction and recognition of our sin. Psalm 51 uh, Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, 
We, we see the words of a man after God's own heart, the words of David in response to his sin. As he uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba, uh, arranged for her husband to be murdered in, in an effort to, to, uh, to cover it up, we might think, how in the world can somebody like that be a man after God's own heart? Well, I think Psalm 51 is our answer. Uh, Psalm 51, we could read this entire section as David prays that God will create a clean heart within him, up in verse 10, uh, begs God for, for his forgiveness. But look what he says in particular in verse 16 and 17. It says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David says, I recognize it's not sacrifices that you want. Now, God did command sacrifices of them in the Old Testament. Uh, and we'll see by verse 19, he says he is going to bring those sacrifices. But he says, that's, that's not what it's about. I recognize that that's not, it's not that God wants us to kind of pay him back for all the wrong that we've done. You know, and that, that if, we, if we just do enough good things and we respond the right way, that, that we, we kind of, uh, are able to redeem ourselves and, and atone for the wrong that we've done. That's not it at all. He says, I recognize there's nothing I can give you, no sacrifice that I can bring. That's not what you desire. What God desires is a broken and a contrite heart. God wants us to recognize the broken pieces of our heart and our life that we've ruined his perfect image and that there's no way that we can put it back together. He wants us to bring the broken pieces before him and he will put it back together. But if we are never broken, we never come to him with that contrite heart, um, then we can't expect to receive his grace. Look with me in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. You may remember that this parallel, uh, parable here. Uh, we're introduced to it in verse 9. It says, And Jesus also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Starting in Luke 18, verse 10, it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Brethren, the gospel is for broken people. If we come to God thinking, God, I, I'm so grateful that you have helped me be such a good person. That, that you, you know, my, my life is all put together and I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not like all those other people around me. Um, that's not the heart that goes home justified, right? We can't have the pieces put back together. We can't have the, the perfect painting restored if we don't recognize our need for it. If we don't recognize that we desperately need to be saved, that we need a gift that we cannot pay for. And so, as we're presenting the gospel, as we ourselves are coming to the gospel, 
we need to make sure that we are coming humbled before God with a recognition of our own uselessness and worthlessness on our own. Now, make no mistake, when God imprinted his image upon us, he put great value upon us. And God can restore that value, but on our own, where we're at, we have no value. We have the potential of great value through what God has done and what God has given. Um, It's not about self-worth. No, self has no worth on its own. It's about God's worth that he has put within us and is able to put within us if we come to him with a recognition of our own brokenness. I want to look at one last passage together, James chapter 4. This is the passage that that Luke read for us um, before the sermon. In in James chapter 4, you you notice in verse 4, he uh, addresses uh, the people as adulteresses or you adulterous generation. And so we, we get this illustration of somebody who's been unfaithful to their spouse. Um, sin is an unfaithfulness, is a violation of our relationship with God. And as a jealous husband, God jealously desires the spirit that he has made to dwell within us. He created us in his image, breathed part of himself into us. And he, rightly so, jealously desires a, a relationship with us. But notice what he says starting in verse 6. He says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. And he will exalt you. You know, if, if your spouse had been unfaithful to you, what, what would you desire from them in order to restore that relationship? You know, what, would, would you want them to come to you and say, okay, I, I know what I did was wrong, it was really bad, um, but what can I do to make it up to you? Um, what, what do you want? Uh, do, do you want flowers? You want chocolates? You want a puppy? You know, what, what can I do to make it right? Would that, would that be what, what you're desiring? Not at all. You don't want them to make it up to you. They can't make it up to you. What you want is for them to feel the pain that they have caused. You want their heart to be broken the way that your heart has been broken. What God desires from us is for us to recognize what we've done against him. And the pain that we've caused his heart by taking his perfect image within us and trampling all over it. And he wants us to come before him broken. Saying, God, we we know what we've done. And we know we don't deserve you to take us back. But we want that relationship. We want you. And God in his grace is able to restore us. We're going to talk more in our next outline uh, more thoroughly about the good news of salvation. That God does want to restore that relationship. That he has gone to great lengths to make that possible. And while we can't regain this relationship on our own, while we can't pay for what we've done, we can't put the broken pieces back together. God can. Um, And so I I want us to to end today, um, you know, instead of looking at that in more detail as we will next time, um, I I hope today 
that, that you can end thirsty and hungry for, for the grace, the salvation, the restoration that God alone can provide. And if that's where you're at at this moment, don't, don't wait until the next lesson. Um, come to somebody and say, okay, if, if you don't know what it is that, that you need, if you don't know how it is that those broken pieces can be, uh, put back together, don't go home and say, well, I'll, I'll figure it out eventually. No, let's talk about that. Uh, come to me, come to, to any of these people here uh, about what, what we can do, what Jesus has done so that you don't have to be separated from him, so that you can have a hope of eternity in his presence for all, uh, for, for all eternity. If, there, if there's some way that we can help you in coming to the Lord and, and coming to appreciate what it is that God has done through the sacrifice of his son, through his resurrection, um, that, that you can put your old life behind you, uh, bury it in the waters of baptism, and be raised to walk in newness of life. We want to help you with that. If you have some need, some, uh, if you've never responded to the gospel, we can help you in that. Or if you recognize that you have responded, but, but you haven't been living it, and there's some sin that, that you need help dealing with, uh, that you need the prayers of these brethren, that, that's why we're here, to help one another. We all are sinners in desperate need of grace. Uh, but God's grace is powerful. And it can transform us. It can make us into a new creation, living lives to his glory. Um, let's help one another do that. If there's any way that we can help you today, uh, won't you make that known by, by coming to the front as we stand and as we sing together?